0: Hey, and good afternoon, everybody. I'm, I'm delighted to welcome Francis Spufford from Goldsmiths College, University of London. I, mean, I think you, you, you're here, so you're familiar with him. Very distinguished, very prolific author. I've got this microphone in quite the right place. Former Sunday Times Writer of the Year, edited two acclaimed literary anthologies and a collection of essays on the history of technology. Of his books, the first one, *A May Be Sometime in the English Imagination, was awarded the Writers Guild Award for the Best Non-Fiction Book of 1996 and the Somerset Maughan Award, and also inspired a Frankfurt ballet production. His second, The Child That Books Built, was described as witty, compelling, and elegant by the New Statesman. His third, Backroom Boys, was called A Beautifully Written Book by the Daily Telegraph. There must have been something negative somewhere along the line, Francis, yes, but, but there's, we, there's we nothing in my brief. We didn't gather, this up <laughs> we didn't gather those mentions, up. We didn't gather those up. It was shortlisted for the Aventus uh, Prize. But today he's really going to talk about this book, Red Plenty, something which he was unable to categorise for me, so I think that's a, a good start, uh, whether it's docu- a documentary account whether it's fiction, uh, whatever it is, it stimulated a great deal of interest, and I'm sure it will uh, join this talk. So, Francis, please. <laughs> right, I'm going to stand over here,
1: because I'm interested. Um, I also have a set of middle-aged eyes which have recently recently um, developed the annoying habit of bleeding, focusing at different distances, <laughs> so um, you'll excuse me if, if squinting forms a large part of this, of this talk. Um, um, as Janet Hartley said, um, my book *Red Plenty* partly belongs in this series because one of the borders that it crosses, or anyway lies on both sides of, is a is a is a border of genre. It's by some measurements fiction, by other measurements non-fiction, um, and um, I have to talk about that later. Um, it's. It came out like that because it seemed the appropriate form for the story, note the word story, which I wanted to tell, which is about economics um, and is about a particular moment in Soviet history and in the history of the 20th century which is very often squashed flat, squashed out of memory um, by the way that our... Backward looks at the 20th century now tend to be organised. Um, That is to say, if you if you look at people's um, conventional memories of the USSR, they tend to they tend to fall into into clumps. There is like a kind of set of set of rapidly running slides. Um, There are the things to do with with the October Revolution um, itself, which usually have visuals by. Eisenstein in our imagination, there is a largish um, and terrible set of things to do with, with Stalin and the Second World War, um, kind of austere, violent, totalitarian, destructive, and then very often what comes after that is the set of images we have for the Soviet Union in its dotage of the Brezhnev years, um, and then the kind of, the reforms descending very rapidly into chaos of the Gorbachev years so there comes a set of images of the Soviet Union as um, obsolete imploding um, so clearly marked for destruction with the advantages of hindsight um, that, that that's, that's pretty much all we see so kind of revolution totalitarianism um, uh, senility, senility and death um, and missing in there is a period which has the power to, to to confuse our sense of 20th century history considerably. If we if we let it have the space in there, I think it should have, which is the period, roughly the Khrushchev time, um, sometimes these days referred to as the Sputnik moment. So I noticed that when President Obama says the Sputnik moment, he actually means what the Sputnik moment meant in America rather than what it meant in Russia. Um, the period after Stalin um, when for a while not a very long while, it really did seem for a while as if the Soviet Union was serious competition for the West when it appeared to be winning by some some measurements Um, the thing that started me writing this book was reading um, a nicely ironic little article by Paul Krugman, the economist um, who pointed out that Almost exactly the same language was used about Soviet growth in the 1950s and early 60s as is' used these days about chinese and indian growth the the same kind of um, the same slightly terrified awe the same sense that um, the West had better examine itself and very rapidly learn the lessons from from this awesome new economic economic power. Um, and not an illusion either, because Soviet growth really was running, even by the most kind of conservative recalculations, kind of upwards of sort of five, six, seven, sometimes eight percent through through the fifties. So there was this there was this period of alarm over not just not alarm over over Soviet tyranny, not moral alarm, but economic alarm over over Soviet competition, over this this power perceived as being. Um, one of the most rapidly growing economies on the planet um, and that doesn't quite belong in the way we remember Soviet history it went away very fast um, and it's all too easily uh, thought of now as just a kind of a brief a brief illusion um, a kind of hallucination shared between the USSR and the West which it was partly but only only partly um, and it seems to me that it's something that we ought to be re-entering imaginatively, imaginatively, which is why I ended up writing about it in um, in an imaginative form. Um, but I think what I'm going to do is I, I shall I shall I have some I have some pictures if, if if the PowerPoint works. I think I shall sort of whisk you briefly through the story, um, and then talk about kind of how I did it and the border. How I, how I chose to write it and the border crossing involved there, um, and then I hope answer lots and lots of questions. Um, right. Aha, yes, good. Um, that, as anyone who can read Cyrillic, and by the way, i just, I, I, need to, I I make a point of fessing up as quickly as possible when talking about this book. I don't speak Russian, I don't read Russian, I'm entirely dependent on secondary material and what people are kind enough to translate mm-hmm. for me. My only qualification for doing this is that I am quite good at at telling a certain kind of, of, of unexpected story. Um, that is an another Soviet champagne. Um, in 1936 in the summer um, a small group of people got off the um, Moscow to Berlin express and discovered to their embarrassment that people were looking and pointing and giggling behind their hands at them and they they couldn't work out why until having got used to the kind of got used to the capitalist scene around them they realised that they were all wearing absolutely identical suits Um, this was um Politburo, Politburo member Anastas Mikoyan um, and some of his colleagues, who had been sent on um, a fact-finding mission about Western food technology, um, and they returned from from that journey. They went to they went to France and they also went to North America. Um, from North America, they brought back uh, ketchup, hamburgers, and ice cream, and from France, they brought back champagne. And from then on. Um, Soviet wineries in Georgia and Armenia were producing large quantities um, of champagne. It's it's a much more industrial product than the, than the, than the French stuff that comes out of bottles, and it doesn't taste the same, as anyone who's drunk a bottle of Soviet mm-hmm. champagne yes. knows. Um, but it was it was very important. It was important that it existed for symbolic purposes, because champagne, as we know, is the metaphor for for the high life, for for good things, um, and. Soviet champagne was introduced in 1937 to eight at a very grim time in Soviet, in Soviet history. A grim time, which, if you're going to imagine it correctly, you need to allow large champagne adverts as well, dotted around Moscow in the middle of in the middle of the worst of the purges, um, um, because the ideological story of the Soviet Union is the one is the one that we most most often tell. It it also needs to be told as a material story, particularly since the ideology in question was materialism um, and this required them to promise a future not just of sacrifice and of um, idealised proletarians waving flags but of practical concrete material good things um, which could certainly not be delivered in the late 1930s um, considering that almost all Soviet income was being appropriated for investment and virtually nothing was left for consumption. but they could provide a symbolic a symbolic delivery of, of, of the future that was coming. And that's what Soviet Champagne is for. Um, um, and, and it took. Um, it was not only a symbol, but a, but, a, but a drinkable symbol. And it is still being produced in very large quantities in Russia now, because that's what champagne ought to taste like if you're, if you're a Russian. Um, um, there were, other, there were other bits of consumer goods, often of some ideological significance. That's Sanit toothpaste. Um, toothpaste being important because it's part of the party's modernization drive and part of the demand that, that Soviet people learn to be cultured. Um, culture being a term which stretches all the way from um, reading Tolstoy through to brushing your teeth regularly um, with Sanit. Um, but it is a mistake to think of these as being, in Western terms, kind of the tip of a of a, of a consumer iceberg. It, the tip is there; there is nothing else underneath it except except heavy industry at, at this point. Um, and some of the advertising. This is a different world of advertising because it's a different 20th century. This, for example, um, can anyone read? Can anyone read Russian? Cigarettes. Yes. Um, this 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 poster says "smoke
2: cigarettes."
1: No brand name, just cigarettes. Um, because that year they had um, they had a surplus of of tobacco, and they wanted people to stop using rolling tobacco and start buying the machine rolled stuff. Hence, Mr. Sophisticated here with his cigarette. Um, so not. Following, not following the anything even closely resembling the kind of the retail priorities of the West, um, and for the most part, the top dressing to to kind of dream of the future, which hadn't arrived yet at all, any more than this existed. Um, this is a, a kind of utopian plan for the Aeroflot headquarters in Moscow, um, done in done in the 30s. I winged person on the top. Um, but the important thing is that by the early fifties, after the kind of the wreckage of the war had been dealt with, and after an extraordinary amount of forced forced growth on very destructive human terms um, in heavy industry, there was a point in the early fifties when Buildings like that actually started to exist. Um, that's Moscow State University with its with its spire. Um, one of the the sisters group of, kind of Stalin Stalin Gothic, but I think they're more sort of Stalin Art Deco skyscrapers, which surround Moscow on the principle that Moscow, for the sake of dignity, need, needed skyscrapers just as much as as New York. And once buildings like that start to exist. Um, the future stops being just a future and becomes something which needs to to exist in the present and something which which Soviet people start to feel is is actually coming in the present. Um. Because during the 1950s, although Soviet growth was heavily concentrated in, in, in heavy industry, um, Enough of it spilled over into into consumer goods and how people lived that there was a rapid, pal- um, palpable transform- transformation. Um, um, in one thousand, nine hundred and fifty, most Soviet citizens were still li- living in in infinitely subdivided Tsarist housing stock. Um, um, by one thousand, nine hundred and sixty, a good proportion of them had been rehoused in in new apartments of the concrete kind, which now kind of ring all all Russian cities. Um, um, people had been wearing hand-me-downs and sort of scraps of clothing and endlessly improvised things for 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 twenty years or so. By nineteen fifty, by nineteen sixty, they were in they were in new clothes. Um, um, the Soviet Union had, in fact, pretty much managed by kind of by the late fifties to kind of to to, to fulfill its original. Goal of of beating the capitalism of the 1930s. It was it was dressing, housing, feeding people as well as Nazi Germany or as well as Depression-era America by, by the late by the late 50s. And on the basis of this, um, that's confident, confident Moscow as the 1961 um, party congress comes up. Guidebook for all of those about to visit it. Um, on the basis of this, on the basis of a kind of real experience of kind of transforming living standards and on the basis of some kind of some true belief up at the top Um, promises were made that the rest of abundance was due to follow Um, not due to follow in some vague aspirational way but due to follow in a um, Timetabled, entirely concrete way. Um, the 1961 Party, party Congress um, adopted the first the Bolshevik party program um, since, I think, before the revolution. So party programs had been regarded as difficult and inflexible documents to be left strictly alone during the Stalin time. Um, and it made uh, possibly the rashest political promise of the 20th century. Um, which was that by 1980 thanks to higher Soviet growth rates um the USSR would be richer than the United States um, and again not in not in some kind of abstract impalpable palpable way that th- that that Soviet citizens would be would be living a a richer life um than than the capitalist life um uh, consuming goods of "quotes" um, significantly higher quality, um, which, if you think through what that's promising, is is astonishing. Um, it means it means kind of Soviet cars better than Mercedes's, It means um, it means everything. Um, not a promise you would have made if you had um, felt vaguely aspirational, um, or a promise you would have made if you had been um, Hesitant about the future, Khrushchev was. Khrushchev was not hesitant about the future. Um, at this point, we need to allow some folklore in as well. Um, that is a cosmonaut <coughs> subjected to um, to the um, to the fairy tale treatment in an inlaid box because um, the. Cottage industry of making inlaid boxes, um, very handy for export, was redirected during the 20th century towards celebrating contemporary heroes as well. So you tend to get um, you tend to get kind of science being celebrated as if it was a triumph of fairy tales, or fairy tales celebrated as if they were a triumph of science. And this seems to me to be important too. That there is there is a sense in which what Khrushchev is promising is not only Sophisticated, sophisticated and economic or or ideological and self-deceiving, but it's actually corresponding to a fairly ancient peasant desire for plenty. And I, I, I'm not meaning to patronise this at all, because it is a universal desire. Everybody's ancestors are peasants. The astonishing thing about the 20th century is that so many of us have moved into a state resembling the dreams of our, of our peasant ancestors the, the Russian peasant dream of a feast that never ends is no sillier than anybody else's um, um, so a situation in which as Khrushchev told um, a stadium in Moscow in 1961 in which fairy tales were coming true in science was bringing them about in daylight um, there we have um, Khrushchev Stuffing itself frankly um, with <laughs> Fidel Castro um, well Castro is, is is touring I think somewhere in the Caucasus um, there's probably if that looks like red wine there's probably some Soviet champagne further along further along the table. Um, Khrushchev, who I find fascinating, um, a man driven by Considerable personal demons and a, an abiding sense of personal guilt that would that would only lie down for a while while he was in power, on condition <coughs> that he worked almost continuously and made promises large enough and heavy enough to um, to banish um, to banish his fears and and regrets. Um, I like, also a factor in, in what he so rashly promised. Um, anyway, that's Khrushchev enjoying plenty. Um, which he thought of in equally kind of literal and corporeal terms as well. There's a, um, a remark he made, excuse the squinting, um, in um, in East Germany around right about this time. Don't worry, when we reach communism, we're not just going to sit there eating ham and licking our lips. There'll be ham for you too.
3: <laughs>
1: um, oh, <thank> you. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> hang on a second. Um, <laughs> Yes. Sorry. <laughs> um, thank you. Um,
0: that used to happen in Russia all the time.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, and because he believed that the next 20 years really would um, see the Soviet Union overtaking and surpassing the West, a number of quite drastic cultural risks were taken as well. Um, that is Charles Eames of Charles and Ray Eames, the chair designers, um, um, Practicing with a mock-up of the American exhibit at the American National Exhibition in um, in Moscow, um, they they um, they invited the Americans to 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 do an exhibition of American economic achievements in a Moscow park. Um, they then sent members of the Komsomol along to heckle, um, but they did do it. Um, and to their discomfiture, um, instead of sending kind of Enormous film shows about Abraham Lincoln and um, epically large American steam locomotives and things, which is presumably what they had expected. Um, in fact, as a piece of kind of quite brilliant and insidious Cold War cultural politics, um, the Eameses were commissioned to. Um, this is only one of the exhibits. It was mostly it was all consumer goods. They sent kind of no nuclear reactors. Um, they sent they just sent the contents of American supermarkets and American recent model cars and things. And the Eameses were commissioned to produce um, a slideshow um, with occasional bits of film strip and accompanying music on these, um, in fact I think it was seven screens altogether. Um, it was a kind of multimedia blitz of, of consumer plenty, um, all in kind of beautifully glowing Kodachrome, um, which astonished people who were themselves pretty much in black and white. And if you remember the Soviet champagne poster and the toothpaste toothpaste advert, ha- and, and smoked cigarettes, had not in fact been exposed to very much sort of persuasive commercial imagery at all. Um, um, those are little cardboard Russians. Um, well, they practice it with a mock-up in, in, um, in the United States before moving it to Moscow. Um, um, meanwhile, read plenty. And This is a selection of lamps from Moscow department store. Um, And you begin to see from that that there is a kind of hill to climb in terms Mm -hmm. of early 60s style. Again, not meaning to patronize this at all because there is a fundamental problem um, in the Soviet economy which they are... um, they are increasingly aware of themselves. This is not a society blundering comically towards disaster. This is a society which has, among other things, managed to produce an incredible number of very analytically minded scientists who notice that there is, there is a problem here and that um, there is an underlying reason why the American economy finds it quite a lot easier to produce one, two, three, four. What is 12 kinds of um, far more than 12 kinds of lamp, whereas it's very difficult to keep even even this range of lamps from modernist through to Kutsi um, in stock in any in any Moscow department store. Um, and but in order to get to a future which looks like that, that's the cover of Technology for Youth magazine from way out of the period. Um, forgive me for being for being anachronistic about this. Um, But but to get to to get to a suitably glowing science fictional future of um, of Soviet Soviet abundance, something was going to have to be done um, um, about the shape of the Soviet economy. Um, Let me show you. Yeah, that is um, Kalinin Street, and those are the economic ministries lit up at night. Um, The problem. Is that, as partly as a matter of philosophy, um, partly as a matter of partly as a matter of practicality, um, the Soviet Union counted things rather than um, rather than money. It used money only as a secondary accounting system for tracking where things had got to. Um, um, And the result of that was it was extraordinarily difficult for anybody involved in planning inside those buildings with USSR written on them um, to get any kind of detailed real-time feedback about what people actually wanted in the way of lamps, even so far as they were being serious about trying to produce a consumer version of Plenty, which they they got closest to at this point, I think, probably than than any other time in Soviet history. Um, very difficult to tell how much any particular thing was wanted, um, and so far as you know, the building of heavy industry was concerned, this this had been solved till then by a form of of tug of war between between different industries, um, in which you try to produce as much as possible of kind of various bulk items needed for industrial growth: steel, concrete, um, that kind of thing. Um, and then those consumer industries which had most pull and um, could twist arms most effectively would get the largest share of whatever it was. Um, this turns out to work okay for the early stages of industrial takeoff, hence the very high growth rates. They, they, um, they were extremely inefficient in their use of capital investment, but it didn't matter very much um, um, at that point. But it doesn't work as a way of of doing the fine allocation of commodities to anything, um, industry um, or consumption, particularly not consumption, since consumers had absolutely no pull whatsoever in Soviet planning. Um, Indeed, indeed, Soviet planners faced with a large and complicated network problem um, could balance their books by pushing the problem off the edge of the network to consumers, there being no consequences whatsoever for inconveniencing consumers. So, um, as I said, this is not a stupid society. It's a society deeply committed to a particular historical course, but it's not a stupid society. Um, And as part of the the post-Stalinist kind of um, easing of things, it also becomes a little bit more possible for it to talk to itself critically and exchange diagnoses. Um, And this man here... um, the one wearing the thing that looks like the pajama jacket, um, which may be a pajama jacket, since it was notoriously difficult, even for well-connected intellectuals, to get lightweight summer, to get lightweight summer clothing. So that may well be a pajama jacket that he's that he's wearing. Um, this man, Leonid Vitalyevich Kantarovich, the only Soviet citizen ever to win the Nobel Prize for Economics, um, and an extraordinary intellectual figure. Um, the closest Soviet equivalent to John von Neumann, probably, with with a similar range of interests, going all the way from kind of game theory through applied economics into the purest of pure maths, and then into hardware design, cybernetics, um, the early the early you know early theories of of, of computation, um, and he <coughs> produced. I mean, he he invented it spontaneously and originally in 1938 and spent the rest of his life refining it it was then reinvented independently in in the West twice more Um, the thing which later on is called linear programming Um, whose whose importance in the Soviet setting is that it allows you to produce a kind of excuse me this is getting boring in the economic a kind of demand-like logic in a situation in which there is not very much actual demand to use as as an indicator Particular things are wanted. What he showed was that for any for any given um, economic plan, there existed, in theory, a set of prices um, which could be applied in a completely decentralised way by by managers if they simply tried to maximise their income using this using this set of prices. You would get. Um, the optimal assortment of production, which corresponded to your plan. In other words, it's a way of, without having market prices, letting prices do the job of telling you, of telling you how much you needed things, um, not how much the consumer needed things, but how much the planner needed things. There's always that extra step, um, and this appealed very deeply to um, to um, to the Soviet leadership, um, who were. Probably a mixed metaphor coming here. Deeply committed to the the hardware of Soviet society. Um, in many cases, it involved literally knowing where the bodies were buried, and there were very good reasons for not disturbing the physical plant in, in in the Soviet Union, or for messing around politically with the infrastructure. On the other hand, they were very open to the idea that if you could run different and cleverer software on the Soviet hardware, um, you might be able to get kind of better, faster. Um, and of leaner, cleverer, more economical outcomes and therefore faster growth. Um, that is a Soviet computer called the Bezm2, which is, as you can see, is running on vacuum logic, not on transistors. The um, Soviet computer industry lagged a bit, but it was being run by very, very clever people. Though they never produced nearly as many of each model. Their, their, their computers through the 50s pretty much kept up with, Soviet, with, with, with Western technology. Um, they made the move to transistors at about the same point. They were constantly experimenting um, with new kinds of computer architecture. Um, Kantarevich himself, um, as I said, was, was involved in theorising it and, to an amazing degree, in actual practical experimenting with it. And there were enough different computer, computer designing and producing bureaus that they, you know, they, they raced each other in terms of producing higher and higher clock speeds and things. And although. The only consumers who really got their hands on this stuff of the Soviet military. Um, it existed, and it was being it was being produced. Um, so, it seemed quite plausible in the late fifties that with the right with the right programming and the right degree of computing power, fifties um, early sixties, it would begin to be possible to um, yeah not to rewire the Soviet economy, but to but to reprogram it. Um, um, yeah. Um, and in order to do that, um, they added in another to the Soviet Union set of science cities. Um, they had one. They had one for space. They had um, several for um, the nuclear weapons program. But this place, Akademgorodok, which is one of the places that my book is set, um, is unusual in that it was. For yeah, particle physics, um, but not for genuine particle physics research, not for um, not for weapons production, um, and for the social sciences. It is the nearest place in the Soviet Union, uh, I suppose, to the London School of Economics. Um, it had uh, maths departments, economics departments, a large computing centre where um, those in the social sciences actually got a chance to 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 run their programs on the hardware rather than waiting until three o'clock in the morning. Um, which they had to do in time sharing the the hardware in Moscow Um, and large numbers of people including Kantorovich, were moved there, Um, There was a decree from the Politburo that you could be released from any job if you had a job offer from from here Um, and it had political backing at the top including from Khrushchev who um, took his usual rather erratic personal interest in it. Um, he is responsible for the hotel on Academia Lock only being eight stories high. Um, it was initially twelve stories high, but when he was shown a model of it, he made scissoring motions with his fingers and said, <laughs> That's what I think of your skyscraper. Um, and it abruptly became four stories shorter in the design. Um, and here, um, this is now just to save it champagne, really. Here for those who were thought to be producing the kind of the technologies of of abundance for everybody, um, a little bit of the future was <laughs> delivered in advance. That, as you can readily see, um, is a beach in Siberia. Um, we are about as far from the ocean as you can possibly get on the map of Eurasia at this point. Um, but that is an artificial ocean created by damming the river Ob, just next to Novosibirsk. Um, they've done it already, but the new bit. very Soviet at all in terms of ordinary Soviet experience in the early 1960s. And it's still there. Um, and it's pretty quite a convincing pocket ocean. Um, it's only about 10 meters deep, but it's it's large enough if you look at it at certain angles that you get a kind of a sea, a sea horizon, um, which is a sort of, a kind of it's a kind of trompe l'oeil Siberian future. Um, at the time to be um, a cheerful postcard of Academic Akademgorodok at sunset. Um, (laughs) Even when it hasn't been kind of um, pixelated like that, it still looks shockingly blood red. Um, And it seems appropriate as a way to um, talk about what went wrong with this particular idea. Um, Katarevich's research, which was officially endorsed um, proved to be extraordinarily hard to, to apply for reasons which I'm sure many of you can guess straight away um, that well multiple multiple constraints in, in Soviet reality preventing it from being from being easily applied um, it's it relies on a characterization of what an economy is which is very very politically naive even in, even in Soviet terms, it assumes that, that that an economy is an abstract task of allocating goods to where they will be of most use it, it, it doesn 't allow at all for the reasons why there might be a deviation from from that perfect distribution. Um, it assumes that there are no consequences the prices it assumes that the people Running this system are perfectly rational and um, are willing to take perfectly rational decisions and have no self-interest of any kind. Um, um, and eventually, eventually, um, the reforms they were proposing only took the very abortive um, form of an attempt to get Soviet the industry moved over to a system in which um, the managers got bonuses depending on whether they hit a profit target rather than hitting an output target in terms of physical stuff um, which is no use whatsoever unless your price system is itself carrying rational information about whether making a profit is any use um, the nearest constraint was that um, prices, particularly prices for consumer goods were immensely politically sensitive um, and one of the earlier bits of muscle flexing by the economists of Akadem Goradok and elsewhere is that in 1962 they persuaded the Politburo to raise the price of meat um, on the grounds that it was not not in a kind of cybernetic, cybernetic responsive, constantly recalculated way, but um, just as a kind of preliminary piece of rationalisation on the grounds that um, that meat prices were so wildly out of line with the costs of producing meat that collective farms were losing with every, with every cow they sent, to be, they sent to be slaughtered, which is one reason why beef was extremely hard to find in the Soviet Union at the official, uh, the official price. Um, and Khrushchev, trying his best to be um, a good post-Stalinist enlightened ruler, took the intellectual advice he was given, and they raised the price of meat um, sharply. Um Unfortunately, at the same time as they did that um, they also um, they also recalculated factory norms um, factory norms which governed what workers' wages were um, and this meant that in some places there was a simultaneously a thirty percent wage drop and a sixty percent rise in the price of meat um, in most places in most places um the the Security forces managed to to keep discontent over this down to um, (coughs) um, a bit of graffiti and and a touch of drunken shouting Um, but in a town called Novocherkask near Rostov-on-Don there was a strike um, which got completely out of hand partly, and another Soviet irony, because um, those who were on strike had no practice being on strike at all and got their information about how you do strikes from watching Soviet films. Um, um, so they ran their strike like a revolution. They marched into town carrying red flags and pictures of Lenin, um, and homemade banners with very rude messages on them indeed, including one which said, to cut Khrushchev up for sausages. Um, ham, sausages, there's a tune there's a, they were paying close attention. Yeah. Um, um, and would not would not disperse, and through uh, a series of events which are which are still very disputed today, um, there was there was a massacre in the town square which killed um, upwards of 20 people, um, and led to kind of very rapid um, very rapid resurfacing of the town square with new concrete because they couldn't get the blood stains off. Um, and the thing that the Politburo learned from this but did not share with reform-minded academics is that you should never, never touch the price of foodstuffs. Um, from then on, nobody at the top was actually willing to listen to, to reform proposals that involved tampering with the kind of the physical basics of, let's of, of life. Um, um, those are actually trainee forestry inspectors, but it's such a good image for... Um, the, the, the turn towards the police that happened in the later 1960s that um, I, I can't resist it, um, and far more because of the Cuban Missile Crisis than because of Novichok. But in a broad sense, um, because he had terrified his colleagues with the economic promises, Khrushchev was um, Khrushchev was was pushed out of power by his by his colleagues in the autumn of 1964 and replaced by the genial Mr. Brezhnev um, who realised that in political terms the the, the winning solution to the problem of the Soviet economy was not even to try. Um, Brezhnev Brezhnev saw a very limited and completely hobbled um, to to reform along cybernetic lines, um, brought in and then just as rapidly forgotten about. Um, but he was lucky enough. He was lucky enough to um, to come to power at about the same time as the West Siberian oil fields came online, and um, the Soviet Union switched from the strategy of um, kind of bootstrapping, autarky, trying to work your way towards a, a state of abundance in every in every commodity just by by building up from heavy industry onwards um, to um, to being a commodity producer on the world market and oil revenue from then on um, made good as many deficiencies of the Soviet citizen system as they could apply it to. It um, bought weapons, it bought a certain amount of um, present tense comfort for Soviet citizens. Um, the number of televisions and fridges rose greatly um, and um, um, there were more cars, there were little bits of, of, of what Red Plenty had been supposed to look like, but all of the promises of the 61 programme were swiftly retired and never, ever, ever referred to again. Indeed, there is um, there is supposed to be a story that in 1981, very late to um, two people who had buried um, a copy of the 61 programme in a kind of homemade time capsule dug it up um, Read it out loud, and were immediately arrested for anti-Soviet propaganda and <laughs> agitation. Um, this may well be a Brezhnev joke, a of era joke, rather than a Brezhnev era fact, considering that Brezhnev era jokes and facts ran pretty close together. Um, um, Brezhnev era joke. Brezhnev is, is um, addressing the party party conference, and um, as his speech enters its third hour. Um, the organs of security swoop and arrest some members of the CIA here are sitting in the audience. That's wonderful, says Brezhnev. How did you do it? How did you spot them, so many people? Well, say so KG KGB modestly, as you yourself have said, General Secretary, the enemy never sleeps. <laughs> Let me remind you, the future was supposed—the future was supposed to look like that. Um, instead of which, um, they gave up on—they gave up on the dream of abundance—and um, continued to build the thing they knew how to build, which was heavy industry. More and more and more of it, um, completely dissociated from need, while their economists and Mathematicians squeaked impotently in the background um, until, by the end of the Soviet time, Soviet cities, rather than looking like that, looked like that. Um, they have more heavy industry than, than any other economy on the planet by the time they finished, and um, less less um, less joined up to genuine utility than any other bunch of heavy industry on the planet either. So. Um, So that was the story I wanted to tell, um, but at this point I feel I can really sit down. Like, um, I didn't. I didn't want to tell it as a story about um, the foolish ideological But it seemed to me that there was, particularly when you thought about it materially rather than in terms of, in terms of politics, that there was a basic... In a minute.
0: They're already starting to ask you questions. So, <laughs> thanks your hands. <Okay>. Go. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I? Can we, I just, do we, we don't need microphones in here, do we? So we no, I don't think know. we do. But can I just, before I, I take some questions, firstly, thank you very much. Indeed, it was it was fascinating and it was great fun. I think on a you know Saturday afternoon, we want great fun, <laughs> and it was that. And can I just add, from my, my own experience, having been in, in Russia as a student in the late Brezhnev hmm. period, where it was absolutely grim. Of course, there was no abundance. It was very hard to remember. The sort of utopian in a way background to some of this but champagne was still there of course and champagne's important yes because champagne was supposed to make available to ordinary people things that had only ever been available to a, a tiny fraction of the population and, and that's why it was done along with chocolates and cakes and everything else but they never got it right and as you say, they probably didn't get it right with the taste, <laughs> although I actually quite like it, I have to say. But the other thing they didn't get right was how you gave it to people. And uh, although I never saw it, I was always told as a student that if you went to the seaside, there on the front, there were always the machines which dispensed champagne. And, and that's what the ordinary Soviet people got in a way that Westerners could never get. You put a few kopecks in, and out came a glass of champagne. But there were two problems with it. Firstly, they had no mechanism to keep it cold. And it's very hot in the south. And secondly, they had no paper cups. So you had a cup on a chain, which when you'd finished it, you went shush like that. And it cleaned out the bottom part of it, but never the top. Now, I've actually drunk beer like that in, in Leningrad, and it's absolutely disgusting, of course, yeah. around the top of the glass, because the top of the glass is never cleaned. But it, it was that thing where you, you you wanted to make it available to the people. You genuinely did. You wanted it to cost three kopecks, not, you know, a vast amount of money, but you couldn't actually give them a clean cup.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I like I like the way, for example, that, you know, it's very difficult to provide people with a summer jacket, but you, mm. can, you can <laughs> yes, that's right.
0: <laughs> Please, you, you, I think you had your hand up. You, um, you said you'd take them one at a time. Yes, Is that yep, okay? I don't,
1: <laughs> I don't think it was my microphone. I was just
3: talking.
1: Uh, Is there a microphone? Ah, experience Is okay. it day. Okay.
4: guy who was taken out by Khrushchev and, was, uh, you know, and mm. became... I missed
1: the first part of his life story. Um,
4: and, and in fact, she said that he felt his life was in danger, yeah. because he brought out his of shadow crisis, which was seen as capitalist, and therefore mm. it was not good.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's an extraordinary story. Um, he invented it in 1938, when he was asked to do some consultancy work for applying with was by temperament both a timid and nervous man and when it came to mathematics a kind of very reckless man. Um, and his idea throughout his life was that the way to get an idea adopted was to get a powerful person to see its virtues. So he wrote to people. Um, he wrote his book and his book didn't get published, the one that was translated there, the best use of economic resources, didn't get published in say, Soviet Union until the 50s. But it Done in in Stalinist times, so that he was nearly done for a couple, of, a couple of times. There's a there's a story about a tested story about the manuscript turning so true that he was part of a very rarefied and very rewarded high stratum of of Soviet science. Um, He was story.
0: 70s, even then, but even more in the 50s, people remembered appalling times. Yes, exactly. Uh, so. And in Edinburgh in particular, they remember the blockade. They remembered it all the time. People didn't die of starvation. And even the people I knew, because I moved to intellectual circles, who were most acutely anti-Soviet, would always come back at the end and say, you can always buy bread. And, and I think you know that, that that was the bottom line. People then <laughs> were very conscious. They, they had to buy bread, and the price of bread never went up. Yeah. And is it, is those it, those those aspirations were so low, expectations really? were so low. Some I think them, that that background to it has to be understood.
1: Yeah, and also to live in a to live in a flat that had nobody in it your own family, exactly. having spent 30 yes. years in a communal apartment, a yeah. never feeling private, never yeah. feeling safe, never being able to yep. to to wash. It was I
0: paradise mean, being in those blocks of flats. Yeah, compared really with a collective kitchen and um, collective
1: toilet. Yeah, <laughs> and your children your children <laughs> could go to college and mm. um, could, you, mm. know, you know, trumpet and play jazz. And, for yeah. mm. your daughters could get abortions. Horrible form so of contraception. <laughs> but then, you know. I thought, you next,
0: then you over there <laughs> then to suspend time because you've had your hand up for a while. <laughs> yes, you <laughs> but I, I very much enjoyed your opportunity.
1: the ideas and took the responsibility for, for attempting the connection building and things since his idea of- Very yeah.
0: I was mad, come on. Seth, I think on that note that's a very good argument. <laughs> I, I have to say that, you know, for all the, the, the awfulness of the Soviet Union the, the jokes were the best. <laughs> I mean it wasn't much consolation, but it was it was some consolation. <laughs> Thank you very much. Sure. That was an enormously fascinating lecture. Uh, it was so it was stimulating, it was great fun. And I, I have to say, as, as, a, as a Russianist, I'm almost embarrassed by how easily you've actually got under the skin of it. As, as you say, you're not a Russianist yourself. But, <laughs> but can I, I also tell everybody that this is the book, Red Plenty, that Vance has been talking about, uh, which is on sale, but also he is uh, very happy to sign
3: copies. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. <laughs>